Sorry if I seem a little bit distracted today. Headache, pain, you know how it is. One of the things I like about this episode is the fact that, by all accounts, although I was never able to 100% verify this, the this episode was basically written with Dwight Schultz in mind, and it kind of shows, because the episode demands that the character, whoever, whatever actor plays Barkley, effectively plays three different roles throughout the course of the episode. And it does a, he, and of course, Dwight Schultz has that kind of range. It's something he's very good at, the ability to, uh, to present himself in, in a completely different way, one moment and then the next. It's probably also worth noting that I am an absolutely huge Dwight Schultz fan, so anytime I see him, I'm like, yeah! It's also probably time to admit something. Some of my long-term viewers probably already know this, but Barkley is actually my favorite character in Star Trek. Yes, really. The whole thing, and across all of Star Trek. Now, there's several other characters towards the top there, and I certainly enjoy many, many characters in Star Trek, but Barkley always rises to the top of that list for me. And I think at least part of that is because of Schultz's performance. And by at least part of, I mean at least most of. Because <laughs> the man's amazing. But what I also find amusing is Barkley, that is to say Dwight Schultz, was... Uh, uh, Basically, he'd done some work with Whoopi Goldberg on an unrelated project, and she was really impressed with him as an actor. And he had actually talked to her about how much of a Star Trek fan he was. And so one thing led to another, and Whoopi Goldberg, who at this point in history had a decent amount of political sway when it came to Hollywood, basically managed to convince them to kind of make a thing that allowed him to do it, and basically make a role for Schultz to be able to come on the show. Now, originally, this was intended to be a one-off just a quick guest star slot, just like so many other guest stars we've had across Star Trek and will continue to have in the future. It is, however, no surprise that Barkley, and that is to say Schultz, was asked to come back many, many times. And he, he ended up coming back, I think it was like seven or eight episodes he's been in across the franchise at this point. And I mention that because that's kind of a rarity when it comes to Star Trek. Usually a guest star doesn't get asked to come back, even if they're really good. There are exceptions to that, and Schultz is one of them, but I just wanted to mention that really quick. Uh, two other things really quick, though, I want to comment on before we get to the episode itself. First, one of the biggest complaints back in the day, I don't even know if this is a thing anymore, but this is back in like the 90s and in, in the convention scene when this, when this was a thing, was that this was an episode intended to poke fun at, make fun of, or generally be satirical towards Trekkies, or Trekkers, or just Star Trek fans, whatever you want to call yourself. Um... Everyone has denied that, 100% across the board. The writers, the writer, the producers, the director, and Schultz himself have all basically said, no, of course not. And I've been thinking about that over the years because for such universal deniance, that's not a word, is it? For, for such universal denial, I find myself willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that it probably was not intended as such a thing. At absolute worst, you could say there's some kind of subconscious thing. But before I say anything else, I am as ever curious of your guys' thoughts as to what you think as to whether or not this was intended as a fan satire. Now, I don't personally. And I want to say specifically my reasoning for that. And my reasoning is Michael Piller. See... Pillar and Ira Stephen Bear were both involved in the script of this episode, although they weren't actually the writer, you know, herself, I think. I don't actually remember who wrote this episode. Please forgive me. I didn't write it down. But um, I mentioned that because Pillar himself basically related a lot of his own personal experiences, which are basically like Barclays. In fact, the line, I, you know, I, I go to a party and I try to 
find a corner and, and make myself comfortable, make myself look like I'm comfortable examining a potted plant, is almost a direct quote from something that Michael Piller himself had told Ira Stephen Bear. And Ira Stephen Bear had worked on the script of this episode and added that in directly because of what Piller had told him. And that a lot of the inspiration came from personal experience on behalf of the producers and writers. Now I mention that because don't a lot of us have those kind of experiences in our lives? Now, at this point in my life, I'm uh, extremely extroverted. But I have to admit, a lot of that is because of my enjoyment of other people and my desire to get along with other people. I had to learn this. Anybody who's a long-term viewer of mine knows this, because I actually did an entire video just talking about how I learned as a, you know, as a kid, as a teenager, uh, how I learned how to act the way I felt, because it wasn't natural for me. It wasn't natural for me to change my tone or inflection or body movement or the way I present myself to indicate what I was actually feeling. And thus I kind of learned to fake reality, even though it was a real feeling, right? But I had to learn that because when I was much younger, I was kind of in the same boat that Barkley was. And I still remember those days to this very day. I was the kid who was off in the corner playing by himself. Not because I wanted to, but because, and I'm just going to borrow a direct quote here, because I was afraid all of the time of, of forgetting someone's name, of not knowing what to do with your hands. And I understand exactly what that feels like. And I suppose that's at least part of why I enjoy Barkley so much of a character. Because of that personal connection there. Especially since, like Barkley, I grew out of that. Not, not naturally, not just as a result of growing up, but as part of a concerted effort. And, like Barkley, I had people who reached out to me to help me with that. It is worth noting that this episode, in many ways, is just as much a Geordie episode as it is a Barkley episode. Because we see in, the difference between Geordie at the beginning and Geordie at the end is, is night and day. He's aggravated, and there's this harshness to his tone. And he just sounds like he's about ready to slug Barkley. And he just can't deal with this guy. And he even goes to Picard basically requesting a transfer. And he rants about him to, to Guinan, too. But it's worth noting that Geordie is mostly just frustrated because, well, this is basically a classic example of seesaw effect. Barclay shows up on the crew and he's nervous. And the other crew don't react well to nervousness, especially his superior officer, who would come across as fairly domineering because he's his boss. Now, Jordy's a very easy, likable, you know, get-along-with kind of a guy. But at the same time, he's still his boss, and so Barkley would probably be nervous or hesitant or late and would screw up, and Jordy would come down on him for that, like he should, in all honesty. But then that leads to the seesaw effect, because then Barkley gets worse as a result of Jordy coming down on him, which leads to Jordy coming down on him more, which leads to Barkley getting worse, and leads to the events that we see in this episode. Now, that's all implied. It's implied that Barkley's been on the ship for some time now. It's worth noting that Riker does not get a pass on this, because Riker is not a good leader in this episode. I'll talk more about that in a second, though, because I'm getting a little bit off topic. Uh, well, no, I guess I could keep talking about it. Let's just keep talking about this topic, because you see the ways they act to him and react to him, and I want to discuss the difference between disciplining and bullying. Now, bullying is not the best word. In fact, I, I have several cross-outs on my notes here, because I'm not sure if what, what better word to use. But put simply... <clears throat> Disciplining is something you have to do when it comes to your work environment. 
That's just a, a fact of life. If you are too loose and too casual, then eventually people will just keep pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope, and the quality of their work will go down, or worse, they'll start making actual mistakes and actual problems will start to happen. You need to have some degree of discipline when it comes to a professional environment. That's just duh. And therefore, as the boss, and speaking as someone who has been a manager more than once in my life, you do every now and again have to bring someone to task and be like, look, you screwed up. This is how you screwed up. What I want to know is why you screwed up. And you need to approach that in a certain way. Now, I tend to be pretty easygoing, too, back when I was actually a manager. But you still need to have that line. You still need to bring them to task. You still need to let them know what is unacceptable, what passes the bounds of acceptability. But this is how the seesaw effect kind of comes into play, because we see Jordy is, frankly, rude and abrasive to Barkley. Utterly ununderstanding, utterly unsympathetic, utterly unhelpful. And basically making things worse across the board. There's this bit where Barkley is, is uncertain about the, the, the thing and it's falling apart. And, and Jordy's just staring at him. And then funny, Jordy's just like... And you could just, you could just see the glare underneath the visor there. And Barkley's like, okay, I'll, I'll go and deal, deal with this. It's worth noting, of course, and we only know this with the advantage of hindsight, that this was a, a problem that had nothing to do with Barkley. That he, in fact, was completely in the right. This was the beginning of the problem with the leak and the febrivium, or whatever it was. But then we get to Riker, who grabs him by the arm in the, in the worst place right here, and says, I'm tired of seeing your name on report, Mr. Barkley. You know, and just, it just comes down, Shikong! Now, I'm not saying that kind of approach is always bad, but you can kind of see how that approach was not correct in this circumstance. Anyone with a brain would notice how nervous and unsettled Barkley is. I mean, God's sakes, the man is wearing it everywhere. The way he talks, his, his facial expressions, his body language, all over the place. You can tell the man is immensely uncomfortable. And yet, as we get some backstory, this man is frankly brilliant. In fact, as we will learn throughout the course of the series, Barkley is arguably one of the better engineers Starfleet has had in this particular point in history. Uh, he certainly earned his chops over on Voyager, if nothing else. So, it's not like this man isn't talented. It's not like he isn't smart. It's just that he doesn't fit in. Now, I talked about this on a stream recently. Someone mentioned, uh, you know, what character did you like on Star Trek Discovery? And I said without hesitation, the guy's name I can't think of. God damn it. The, the guy played by Jason Isaacs. Um, damn it, I'm going to have to look it up now. Star Trek Discovery Captain. No, the other captain. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, Jason I Lorca. Gabriel Lorca. There we go. I mentioned this recently on stream. I said uh, Lorca was my favorite character by far. And it wasn't just because of Jason Isaacs, although that did certainly help because he's a great actor. But it was because Lorca didn't fit in. And there's something enjoyable to me about that, especially in Star Trek. As much as I enjoy all the many characters of Star Trek, and as much as I enjoy the overall approach to the Starfleet and the way people interact with each other and blah, 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 in general, most of the characters all fit in. Most of them have all... I don't want to call them homogenized, because that's, that's a huge insult, first of all. But you could group them into the same clique, basically, right? You could see all of them just kind of fitting into that same social categorization. 
It is very rare we meet characters who don't fit into that particular clique, and it's worth noting that most of those characters tend to be among my favorites across the franchise. So, like, like Shran over in Enterprise is a great example of that. He is someone who didn't fit with the clique, but was going to become a regular cast member. I still wish we'd gotten season five of Enterprise, but anyways, that's off topic. Um, <laughs> uh, seven, arguably, counted as this, and, and depending on how well she's being written in any given episode. Um, we, uh, Neelix actually fit in surprisingly well, which I always found hysterical. But by contrast, Tom usually had a little bit more problems fitting in, and he's a, another of my favorites over there. You get the point. I can also mention Quark and Odo and other examples, but you get the idea. Barkley is someone who doesn't fit in because he just doesn't quite click the same way as the others, pun intended. Now, what I love most about that is that this is the kind of character, this is the kind of person who should be approached very carefully and precisely. And as we see throughout the course of the episode, when Geordi makes an honest-to-God effort to reach out to the person, not to the officer, but to the person, he does connect with him. In fact, he connects with him fairly quickly and fairly easily. And Barkley even responds positively. There's a wonderful scene later on where Barkley says, uh, none of, none, those, those characters I create on that holodeck are more real to me than the people out here, with the possible exception of you, Commander. Now that's important, because that right there is effectively the predominant theme of the entire episode. It's, it's the theme about Barkley, it's the theme about Geordi, it's the theme about the holodeck in general, and it's the theme about the crisis of the week. And that connecting theme is the difference between the surface and the un and under-the-hood depth. In other words, you could look at something and say, oh, that's a ball, but then you cut it open and it's actually a cake filled with chocolate. It's like, aha, you know, there's more, it's basically greater than skin deep. There's more underneath the skin, that kind of an idea. So, it, it actually aggravates me a great deal how much Riker and Geordi, for, for an unknown period of time, because we don't know how long it's been since Barkley came on board the ship, just don't seem to get that and treat him like the nervous guy. And of course, it's worth noting that Barkley does the same in return. Barkley treats them as the domineering, you know, commander. In fact, Barkley even sheepishly admits that he was doing this to, to Geordi, that Geordi is the one who started his particular trips to the holodeck in order to deal with this. It's worth noting as well, to be blunt, that the only commanding officers who treat Geordi, excuse me, Barkley with any kind of decency or respect before the episode has reached its conclusion, before Geordi has really reached out to the man, are Data, who's incapable of being anything other than respectful, and Picard, who goes out of his way to try and take care of one of his crew. Now that's important too for something that'll come up later, but we'll get to that in just a second. I'm sorry, my throat is killing me. Hmm. My point being, as the episode shows, if either Riker or Geordi or anyone else really had taken a more hands-on, actual personal approach to the personnel problem of Barclay, this wouldn't have been a problem. And I kind of enjoy that. Not the fact that, it, that, you know, that they screwed up, but the fact that it makes perfect sense that they would. Because everyone else just kind of fits in. I mean, we're on the Enterprise. We just, you just sort of expect everyone to keep up. And what, why aren't you keeping up? Barclay, what's wrong with you? Right? And, of course, it's all per perfectly understandable from Barclay's perspective, too. Let's, uh, actually, before I, before I move forward, I want to mention one other thing. So there's the broccoli uh, thing, you know. The, uh, poor broccoli. Now, Riker actually flat out calls him broccoli to Picard, which is amazingly disrespectful. 
And Picard fl- it says something that is accurate and wonderful. Let's get, you know, it, it kind of cut on from Wesley Crusher. Let's get that uncaught, shall we, says Picard. Which is true, because nicknames are one thing. In fact, Barclay does have a nickname in this episode. It only starts towards the end. It's a very small touch, but it's the nickname he will continue to have throughout the rest of the series. Reg. But that's a, a nickname, a term of affection. Like Data himself says, a term of endearment, something that's intended to be a positive thing. Calling him Broccoli is an insult. The fact that Riker is willing to insult one of his crew to his captain says volumes about this situation. And I love the fact that Picard just slams the, the hood down on that one immediately. No, that's stopping right now. He chose this way of life. He is very well taken care of. Get to know the man. Become his best friend. Do what you have to. He is your officer, and he's also a person, Jordy. Deal with it. And I love how Picard handles that. So, before I move forward with the episode, let's go ahead and talk about... Well, no, 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 no. We'll talk about that next. Let's just keep going with the flow. So... Jordy goes down to Barclay, and this is another moment where we get to see a little bit more about Barclay um, past Skin Deep. Because obviously Barclay at Skin Deep is like, oh no, oh no, oh no. But then, ever since the previous scene where, you know, the, something went wrong with the pad, uh, with the hover pad, Barclay's been down there working on it. Like, the whole time. In fact, later on in the episode, there's almost a throwaway line where Barclay mentions, I was just so tired. I'd been working, I'd been up for 12 hours or 16 hours, uh, working 12-hour shifts trying to figure out this problem. Now, that's important because nuance is important when it comes to dealing with a personnel problem and, more importantly, when dealing with a person because people are nuanced. We are not one-dimensional caricatures despite what certain Hollywood uh, writers would have us believe. And as a consequence we could see that Barkley is someone who really does give a damn about doing his best. There is no conscious choice or effort involved in his mind to say, I don't want to do this, I don't care, or I'm too lazy, or I'm not invested enough, or I don't have the discipline. No, none of that. Because he works himself to the bone throughout this whole episode to figure out this entire problem. And in fact, he is probably one of the biggest reasons why this problem gets solved. To be completely blunt, I would not be surprised if this problem would not have been solved without Barclay's intervention and continuous efforts on the matter. One quick aside, while we're still talking about this, later on, whereas I actually wrote it down, later on, Jordy uh, goes over and says, hey, Barclay, you know, I'd like you to go do this separate scan. And Barclay says, oh, I was already going to do that scan. And Jordy is quietly impressed. These little moments help show that Barclay is competent, that, he, that incompetence isn't the problem here that he does know his stuff, and that he is a dedicated worker. Now, that's important, because if you had someone who was a personnel problem who was just lazy or didn't give a damn, well, that's a whole other ball of wax, isn't it? Also, I notice it's interesting that this comes so quickly after Tin Man, where we had a unique member of Starfleet who didn't really fit in with anyone else. But anyways, I do think Barkley does a better job of it, but both, both guest stars nailed it. So, then... Uh, Barkley is asked, so he's, he's down there working on the uh, hover thing, and he's asked to go into the briefing. Now, <laughs> it's a long-standing quote that people are more afraid of public speaking than death. There's, that's, that's kind of a surface quote that doesn't really get into the depth of the situation. But the relevant point is very well held, and that is a lot of people do not enjoy public speaking. That there's just something about that that just kind of makes people lock up. I actually had to take lessons on that myself way back in... 
I guess this would have been fourth grade, uh, fourth grade through eighth grade. So about four years of my life there. I took lessons regularly every year, uh, multiple times throughout the year in order to try and get more used to public speaking because I was really into acting and I really wanted to be part of the theater troupe. Now, I enjoyed acting, but I have to also admit it was mostly because my best friends were in acting as well. But nevertheless, we wanted to go into acting. We wanted to, to be part of theater production and whatnot. And that would eventually lead to my interest in television productions and so forth and so on. But I mention that because even someone like me, who, again, enjoys interacting with other people, I had to have the, that, that, that step of, okay, I need to learn how to deal with stepping in front of a wide audience. I actually, to this day, if you'll forgive me, to this day I still remember the first time I was ever moderately comfortable speaking in front of a group. It was Shakespeare. To be or not to be was the speech. You know, the, 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 to whether to take arms against a sea of troubles and thus by opposing end them, or to die, to sleep, no more. You know, that whole thing. That was the first time I was ever actually comfortable in any level speaking in front of a group. And I remember that moment because it was like a tipping point for me. And from then on, I just got more and more comfortable with it. Now imagine for a second that you're completely uncomfortable with speaking in front of people, and your boss has just asked you to come in and be a part of a morning briefing at your professional workstation. Then your boss makes the effort to call you out several times. Now, not in a bad way. What Jordy does is actually correct. He basically pokes Barkley. He's like, hey, you know, you, you had a few thoughts on that. You want to share those? And then, oh, I love Dwight Schultz. Oh, my God. He just... You just uh, 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 totally, totally unprepared for speaking in front of the group. It's awesome. It, I, I have no shame in admitting that I gave a few squeals of delight at how adorable Barkley was in this episode. Hands up. If anybody else, anybody else finds Barkley just absolutely adorable in this episode, it's, your heart just goes out to the guy, right? Anywho. So then Wesley is kind of a dick to him. But at the same time, on, I, I always thought that Wesley was just being rude to him. On repeat viewing, and I watched the scene twice, I don't think that's the case. Because the problem is, Wesley's treating him like he would any other member of the crew. Like someone who fits in with the clique. If Wesley had just been talking to Jordy and saying, oh, well, that won't work, this thing or that. And then Jordy would say, you're right, but I would go in this thing. Because Jordy would just immediately respond to it. Wesley doesn't really shut him down in the strictest sense. He just treats him like he does anyone else. And that's the problem. Because Barkley isn't like anyone else. I will also give Wesley credit, because later in the episode, he admits his flaw. Jordy is like, I'm just trying to pull him out. And then Wesley realizes, and I'm the one who shut him down. He actually acknowledges his mistake there. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm not particularly a Wesley hater anyways, but I actually thought it was nice that they acknowledged that. The reason... Basically, this is a common concept in real life. I'm sure it is in fiction, too. It's, it's when someone is super hesitant to do something... And they're finally, finally convinced themselves to try it. It's scary, and it's dangerous, and they have no idea what's going to happen. But, okay, I'm going to try it just a little bit, and then something goes wrong. And then that's just so much worse. Because now, this thing they've been so afraid of, that they finally got up the courage to do, blows up in their face. And then you see Barkley actually gets worse after that scene, after that briefing. Which brings me to the holodeck. This is something I actually meant to open with, but in, in hindsight, this is the first moment the holodeck thing really becomes it. So we actually open the episode with some new crew member, crew member we've never seen before being on 10 Forward, um, being on the holodeck, basically, you know, the whole holodeck shtick. One of the reasons I give Dwight Schultz tremendous credit is because of his range as an actor. It's one thing to be able to act very well. But it's another thing and a much more difficult thing to be able to act very well in completely different ways from each other. Um, 
oh god, there's another actor I can't think of. Uh, he played the Mandarin in uh, in Iron Man three. I can't think of his name, but he's another example of an actor who has great range because the, and those kind of actors are always super valuable because you can give them roles where they have to portray completely different things from each other, like like Dwight Schultz does here. The way he acts in the holodeck is completely different than the way he acts off of it. And there's a third way he acts too towards the end of the episode when he's reached a more moderate perspective with himself and with those around him. But I mention that because it makes perfect sense that he's so calm and confident in the holodeck. Why wouldn't he be? There's no fear there. If he screws up, no one's going to point and laugh or make fun of him. If he forgets someone's name, if he doesn't know how to deal with someone, he could just pause the program or rewind it, right? The, the stakes are completely different for him, and thus all of that fear goes away, all that social anxiety goes away. After all, he also understands that these are not people, that these are characters, and characters that he controls basically absolutely. So it makes perfect sense that he would do that. Now, there's also something I want to talk about, and that's holodeck addiction, or hollow addiction, if you prefer. Now, this is something that would become part of Barclay's story arc uh, in the future, but this is really, you know, this is the beginning of Barclay as a character arc, and if I could be so bold, I don't think I would call Barclay addicted to the holodeck in this episode. Now, I want to explain my reasoning on that one. <sighs> Controversial opinion time. Well, obviously there is a difference between a psychological addiction and a chemical addiction, and obviously anyone can get psychologically addicted to anything with enough repetition and, and work, basically. I have to say that I don't really buy into the idea that, oh, he plays you know, video games every hour, every few hour, a few hours every day, he's addicted to video games. I, I, I feel like that's just doing, being, doing a disservice to the concept of actual psychological addiction, which is a real thing and a real problem. But I don't think, as portrayed, that Barclay has actual hollow addiction. Now, I believe I talked about this over on Voyager, but it's been like four years since I recorded those episodes, so please forgive me if I'm repeating myself. But I especially don't think he does in this episode. He goes to the holodeck to vent, to blow off steam, and he even admits that this whole thing started on this ship with one person, Geordi, that he went to the holodeck to vent at Geordi, that he just couldn't say anything to his face. How many times in your life have you had a situation where you wanted to say something to someone, probably something angry, and you restrained yourself? And then later on, in private, you know, in the shower, and when you're working in the garage, or when you're trying to, when you're trying to get to sleep, or when you're off driving, hmm, with the windows rolled up, how many times have you said what you wanted to say to that person? Just to vent, just to get it out there. So it's no longer bottled up and bothering you and just sitting there as an unresolved note in your brain, right? So what he does here makes perfect sense. And remember, seesaw effect. This just kind of keeps getting worse and worse as time goes on. Because he gets worse, so they get worse, so he gets worse. So of course he starts adding more characters to the holodeck in order to deal with things. All of this is perfectly understandable and a perfectly understandable escapism. In fact, LaForge himself puts it very bluntly. I don't care. In fact, I think I wrote it down. Uh, I don't remember where I wrote it down. Oh, here it is. Yeah, no, I did. What you do on the holodeck is up to you so long as it doesn't interfere with your job, as long as it doesn't interfere with real life. That's cool. The only time he comes close to something that might be called hollow addiction is when he goes on there... He, he was supposed to be part of a morning briefing thing, and they all go and they charge on. It's like, okay, where the hell are you, Barkley? And that's when, that's when Troy and Riker and Jordy 
barge into the holodeck and see the you know the the Greek Shakespearean whatever the hell play thing that he had designed for himself. Now, first of all, before I go any further, God damn it, this show really these shows really have a problem with privacy on the holodeck, don't they? I know I've mentioned this before, and I know I'll mention this again, but Jesus Christ, they just walk right on board. But the thing I really wanted to bring up, aside from the, the next thing, which I'll talk about next, is that he goes to this holodeck. Remember, the whole point of the holodeck is a form of escapism. Oh, God, I can't deal with this. I need to go to the holodeck. And each time he does so in this episode, not counting the very first time, it is in direct response to something that happened in real life. In this case, the time where they finally go after him and nail him, is right after an absolutely humiliating event. Now, he's had problems with Jordy, but Jordy started reaching out to him. But he has had problems with Riker. And now, probably for the first time, or at the very least, one of the first times for real, he's actually having to deal with and brief the captain himself, who is Jean-Luc Picard. Now, Picard is a pretty jo amiable kind of guy when it comes to his leadership style. He has that, you know, light-touch, fatherly approach to command, and this is something we'll see more of throughout the course of the show. But he's still Jean-Luc Picard, a literal legend, and someone who is a very intimidating figure, even if he's not trying to be. The way Barclay just... And so he's up there, and... God, I love Dwight Schultz. He's doing this. I'm, I'm holding my hands up so you can see, but his hands are actually down like this. And it's just kind of in the background. You only really notice if you're paying attention, but his head's kind of lowered, and he's you can just see him... I'm sorry, I'm doing it down here. You just kind of see him, and he's like gripping his sleeve and kind of flexing his hand as he's just, he's got his hand down. He's just trying really hard to hold it together because he's on the bridge. And there's Riker right there, and Jordy's right there, but it's okay. And then Data, who doesn't understand any of this, and it's just being Data, says, oh, actually, this is Barclay's idea. And there's like a solid second before he realizes what's just happened. His head jerks to pick. No, no, no. It was. It. I. I mean, it, it was. It was me. I didn't. I didn't. And then Picard slants John over. Now remember, Picard has already basically ordered that they try to reach out to this guy. So Picard puts on his nicest, kindest face, and I was like, you know, anything going on? And Picard just stutters. Excuse me. Barkley just stutters all over, responding to him, and finally says, No, no, we, sh we should be okay. And then Picard says, Excellent job, Mister Broccoli. Now, obviously, that scene is intended to be portrayed for laughs. And yet, at the same time, oh, my God. I want you to imagine for just a second. Please, put yourself in Barclay's shoes there. Remember, you've just started reaching out. This is what you're afraid to do. This is what you're hesitant to do. But, you know, your commander, your officer, your buddy here, Jordy, is reaching out to you. And you're trying. And you're on the bridge. And you're just trying to be part of the team and trying to help out. And then you have to brief the captain himself. And the captain insults you to your face. Now, he doesn't do it deliberately, but that's almost worse, isn't it? He just slips up as if it was the automatic normal thing to do. Barclay's face, when he does that, says everything it needs to. Even Picard is just... And again, as of a... Patrick Stewart is no slouch himself, so Patrick Stewart adequately portrays the sheer mind-numbing level of horror going through him as he, as he realizes what he's just done. Because remember, Picard understands too. Picard is actively trying to reach out to this guy and just made things a thousand times worse. Then he goes on board the holodeck and misses his appointment thing. Because he was exhausted trying to get this working, and because he just had probably the most humiliating thing that's ever happened to him in his career in Starfleet just happened to him. So no, 
I don't actually think he's fully hollow addicted. I think he was running scared, and I don't blame him. Now, one other thing I want to talk about about the holodeck, other than the fact that they need some frickin' privacy controls, is the fact that... I've already actually talked about this, but so I'm just going to rehash this very briefly. The idea of holodecks and recreating people you know. Now, I actually had a whole discussion on this over in Deep Space Nine. I don't remember the name of the episode. Please forgive me. It's, it's the first one Jeffrey Combs was on, where he played the random alien who wanted a holographic representation of Major Kira to have sex with her. Now, I, dis I feel like I discussed that issue and the complexities of it and depth over there, so I don't want to cover it too much. But at the same time, again, within reason, with moderation, I don't actually see anything wrong with what Barclay did. Let me ask you, and you, of course, do not have to answer me because this is a very personal and private question, but if you had access to a holodeck and you could recreate co-workers on that holodeck or friends on that holodeck or whatever that you could just vent at in one way or another. Obviously, there's the way of venting like when he beats up Riker. There's the way of venting when he makes Wesley Crusher into this boorish, childish oaf. There's the way of venting when he tries to make out with Troy. Now, that's probably the one I'm the least in favor of, personally. But in the interest of understanding and honesty, can't you kind of see the desire to try and... I mean, obviously, lots of people would want to make out with Marina Sirtis. That's not what I mean. What I mean is the desire to go ahead and actually... <sighs> vent at people. Just to... You just got off work. I'm going to use a personal example here. This is from years and years and years ago. I just got off work. This isn't even the networking job. This is before that. This is the IT job. And I just got off work and I get home, and I'm like, Ugh! And I would love to just have been able to walk into the holodeck and recreate whatever his name was, I don't actually remember, and be like, what is wrong with you? Why did you do this? Do you understand what this has caused? Do you understand the problems this has caused? Do you have any idea how much of an issue you have just made for not just me, but the entire rest of the department? We are now screwed for this entire quarter because of what you just did. This is all real events, by the way. I'm just, I'm not going to give details because that's not really necessary. We are screwed because of what you just did. And you did it by your own admission just for freaking cause. Just because you didn't care. Slug. You know, something. Just some way of venting, of ranting, of, as Barkley himself puts it, letting off steam. In fact... To be blunt, I think Barkley is more imaginative than me. I just told you what I'd do. He instead decides to make an entire representation of them in a different format with the whole thing. And, of course, he adjusts their personality in a way to spite them, like, like what he did with Wesley or what he does with Riker. It's worth noting that he does the least to Data and Geordi, which I do find an interesting and an insight into his personality and the way he feels about both characters. So, anyways... So, look at my notes here. There's the bit with the glass. That's when we start to have the problem of the week start to come in. Can I just say that I love the construction of this episode? There is a thread of the week, but the thread of the week is not the usual type. It is specifically an engineering problem. Now, obviously there's plenty of engineering problems which are significant issues, and indeed threats of the week across Star Trek, but my point is this was the perfect choice to have an engineering threat of the week be the one that shows up when Barclay's on the crew, because he's an engineer, and he's the one who's going to be involved in trying to help solve this thing. Note also that Barclay does not single-handedly fix this problem by himself. He does so as part of a team, which not only avoids Mary Sue territory or the problems that might happen later with, you know, Amanda Rogers, but also, uh, it, it kind of gets across the whole point of trying to work better in a group 
regardless of differences, even if you don't fit in. And that brings me to Guinan. I mentioned in my Discord when I was watching this episode how much I loved how Guinan just smacks Jordy in the face with reality. And I think that really is the best way to describe that scene. Because Jordy has been looking at this this entire time as if uh, Barkley is just a guy who's... There's just something wrong with him. It is Guinan who has to point out the other perspective. That Jordy hasn't been seeing Barkley's perspective this entire time. This leads to the first invasion of privacy I mentioned earlier. Um, but the way he talks to him about it, I love it. I, I wrote this down word for word. She says, if I felt that nobody wanted to be around me, I'd probably be late and nervous too. And it's a very valid point, isn't it? It's part of that seesaw effect I mentioned earlier. And the way she says it just really helps nail it home. That one guy that, you know, that was part of her uh, family that everyone told her to stay away from, no one ever stayed around long enough to see how much of a sense of humor he had. And that is the message of the show in a nutshell. You know, going beyond the surface level, going further than skin deep. And so Jordy decides to go ahead and reach out to Barkley, again, on a more personal level. This is when he first sees him on the holodeck. And then there's actually a really, really great scene between Barkley and Jordy. Now, I've already referenced the scene like three times in my discussions of this episode, so please forgive me for rehashing. But it is just a very powerful, very awesome scene. It is, in my opinion, the first time Jordy sees Barkley as a person. He starts to realize what's going through his, his, this other person's mind and tries to understand his perspective and makes a legitimate effort to reach out to him. And Barkley, of course, responds in kind. I get the impression, although I have no proof of this, that when Barkley opens up to Jordy, when he talks about being afraid all of the time of not knowing to do what, what your hands, of forgetting someone's name. This whole wonderful speech that, that Schultz just nails. I get the very strong feeling that this is the first time Barclay's really opened up about this. If not ever, then in a long time. That he really feels like he has enough trust in Jordy, the person, to be honest about this with him. To have overcome that hesitance and that nervousness and that shyness to try and go ahead and explain what's wrong and what he's going through. And, unfortunately, Jordy is called away to deal with the engineering problem, which is continuing to get worse. And I want to mention that at this point in the time, we're 24 minutes through the episode, 24 minutes and 30 seconds through the episode. There's nothing I really like about this episode, is, is it's so densely packed that... I'm saying that wrong. Basically... I thought we were like at the end of the episode because it felt like a lot had happened and a lot had come to pass. And it, I, was, I was barely halfway through it. I was just like, wow. Anyways, so then Reg has to go to uh, Troy's office for counseling. <laughs> oh, this is a woman who he has basically fantasized about making out with since he's done that on the holodeck, more than once. I sometimes wonder what Marina Sirtis thought of this, because the actual actress was actually kissing Dwight Schultz. <laughs> I, just, I just wonder what was going through her head throughout all this. But anyway, so we see her try to reach out to, to Reg and try to make this work with him, and she basically does it with all the right intentions in completely the wrong way. Now, this makes sense to me again, I hate to say that, but it's because Troy is probably too used to dealing with the norm, is what normal, normal people's problems. She just looks at this like Reg just needs to relax. Now, Reg is amazingly uncomfortable there. 
and can't even bring himself to be open or honest with, with everything that's going on about it. And so instead, she tries to say, okay, you're intimidated by me. That's understandable. We'll try to make you relax. And then he just completely flips out. He can barely even deal with this anymore. What I love most, little details, is Schultz, I can't do it because I'm sitting at a desk, but he pulls this pose where he pulls up his knee and he puts his arm on it. Just, and he just kind of gets stock still, like he's made of iron. Like he just can barely keep himself there. And I'm just, oh God, Barkley, no. Again, squealing happened. Squealing happened. Oh, I, my heart goes out to this guy. Really, it does. So he was like, ah. so then, you know, they violate his privacy again. They all find out about him, blah, blah, blah. And that's where uh, I'm kind of skipping forward some of the, re- the last events of the episode because it's not super important. But the big, next biggest part is, and I want to rehash this point because it's so important. Those characters are more real to me than the real people out here. Except you, Commander. The one person who so far has really honestly tried to reach out to Reg as a person is the one person who feels more real to Barclay. In other words, he doesn't see Geordi as just a caricature anymore. Instead, he sees Geordi as a person, and thus he feels more real to him. This has been his problem this whole time. If we put ourselves into Barclay's shoes, it's so easy to see Troy and Riker and Data and Picard as basically caricatures, just the surface level, because, well, their surface level is pushing us back and back and back until we can barely deal with it anymore until we're having trouble coping with it. We have not been encouraged to see past those initial barriers to see the real people underneath that. Geordi's the first person to actually show the real person underneath Commander, the Chief of Engineering, and thus he feels more real to Barclay. I mention this because, again, he was guilty of the surface-level thing, too, just in the opposite direction. So, then they start dealing with the plot of the week. Now, unfortunately, I just really don't have a lot to say about the the actual threat of the week, except for the fact that it was well a well-constructed threat. The entire idea is that there's a dangerous material, which hasn't been used in centuries because it's a dangerous material, that has gone on board the Enterprise and is infecting parts of their systems in ways they couldn't anticipate. All of that makes sense. All of that is logical. They don't need technobabble to explain any of it away. It's just something that's having a, a, an effect on the Enterprise systems. I like that. I like that they know this. I like that Barclay is the one to suggest the key idea, the lateral thinking. Because everything they've been doing is trying to examine the specifics of how these incidents coincide with each other. It is Barclay who sees that is the, the coincidence, <laughs> I swear that's a word, is, is between the interactions of the people, not the interactions of the system. Once again, showing that he's not stupid. And I do also like how once he starts getting into the flow of it, and this is great scene in my opinion, once he starts getting into the flow of it, he, you sort of see him kind of build confidence. Like, like he's a freight train. I know that's a terrible analogy, but you know, he's, he's building up steam. He's getting faster and faster. And you can see how he just kind of grows more confident throughout the course of the meeting because he shares an idea and they don't immediately shoot it down. And instead they talk it out. And then he talks back, and then they talk back, and they have normal social discourse. For what is probably the first time in the episode, he actually works in a group in the way that teamwork is supposed to work. And he becomes more confident and more relaxed. He's not the completely suave person he was on the holodeck, but this is his third portrayal. Barkley, who has, be- who has grown enough self-confidence to be able to say, 
this is what we should do. There's a really great scene towards the end of the episode where they're looking into this, and Barkley says, I think we should go out of warp. And Jordy, without hesitation, says, Captain, recommend we go to Impulse right now. I liked that. Because, once again, throughout the whole episode, Barkley has been showing his chops, his intellect, and his ability to think around and through the situation. And this shows how much trust Jordy has in the expertise and competency of the person he started getting to know. And then they try to go to Impulse, and they can't, because Barkley was right. They're in a very serious and threatening situation here. They're just a little bit too late to deal with it. Um... And then they and then you know they, they figure out the problem and they deduce it and they have the little meeting and they go down and they scan for it and they figured it out and they flush the thing and everything's cool. I, again, I don't have much to say about all of it, although I always find it funny. Every time I watch this episode, they've got like five minutes until the ship shakes itself to threat to shreds at warp. They'll be finding pieces of it for light years. <laughs> and they're just kind of jaunt sauntering down the corridor. I would be sprinting at this point. I know that's harder to film, but god damn it. Anyways. <clears throat> But I do want to say a couple other things about the finale of this episode. First of all, um, I like the engineering meetings. I know that sounds strange, but it's strange because they almost never happen. In general, if there's an engineering problem or a sciency problem, Data, Geordi, or Data and Geordi solve it. Sometimes Wesley's involved, but otherwise it's basically just the, the big guys. I actually enjoy the idea of Geordi pulling together a group of his senior staff, of his senior officers, and saying, hey, let's fix this. Something about that appeals to me so much that I've actually had story ideas bouncing around in my head for years about basically just doing engineering episodes, where it's all about those that staff and how, like, further developing it, making each person, uh, you know, one of the heads of a particular department. Because obviously engineering itself is actually a catch-all term that applies to many different areas. So have an expert in transporter control, or have an expert in warp control uh, fluid, or have an expert in the power, or have an expert in the impulse. You know, I like that idea of all of them combining their resources and working together to make the problem solved. I, I just enjoy that. I wanted to comment on that really quickly. Then finally, of course, Barkley decides to go ahead and, you know, leave the holodeck forever. He'll never be back. <clears throat> it's a nice bait and switch. Because initially the impl implication is that he has decided to quit the Enterprise. But then it's no, he's decided to quit his fake Enterprise. And he actually orders the deletion of all, except for one, of his programs. I like that. Because it shows that there's... there's it shows that he has decided that there's enough worth investing in, in the real world, that he does not need the holodeck anymore. He can still have it. He can still play around with the holodeck and do whatever. But he no longer requires it as a crutch. In other words, he has had a character arc. And I enjoy that. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I'm going to go get some Dayquil. Holy crap, my throat is killing me. <laughs> I'll be seeing you guys next time.